we made this. You Have Been Watching, a podcast devoted to looking in-depth into the fascinating curiosity that is the British television sitcom, part of the We Made This podcast network. I'm your host, Tony Black, and it's just me in this instance. Rob is uh, off watching plenty of comedy in preparation for our next official episode, but in this one, I'm joined by another guest, and this was an episode originally recorded for Another We Made This podcast, Shipwrecked and Comatose, a Red Dwarf-focused podcast, which looks at each episode of Red Dwarf. It's a great show. I recommend it. You'll love it if you really like this show. And I've been teaming up with one of the hosts of that show, Matt Latham, good friend of mine, to discuss each season individually of The British Empire, which obviously starred Chris Barry from Red Dwarf as Gordon Britas, the uh, imperious manager of a... uh, middle-class leisure centre in the 1990s. And Latham and I have been fans of that since we were young. And as part of the experience of Red Dwarf, we thought we'd go through it season by season. And this episode is going to be looking at the first season of the British Empire. And we thought this might be a little uh, bonus episode to sort of tide you over until Rob and I come back and talk a few more um, specific You Have Been Watching episodes. So uh, Latham and I have recorded the first two seasons. So we're going to give you that over the next couple of episodes. And then we will hopefully share the subsequent, I think we've got about four or five more seasons to talk about over the next couple of years. So we're doing them every couple of months, sort of spacing them out. So hopefully we'll share them on here, but you might hear them first on Shipwrecked and Comatose, which as I say, do go and check out if you haven't already. Um, so yeah, hopefully you will enjoy our deep dive into the uh, the early days of the British Empire. Hopefully you'll find it to be just as Latham and I did. Excellent. going to go and um, head towards and speak about um, British Empire in this conversation and what this and what this um, episode is going to be it's going to be a conversation between myself and Tony it's going to be a bit of a conference where we just go and share some ideas <laughs> and some thoughts and feelings about what we have seen and watched in these like six little half hour episodes that comprise <laughs> the first season of this series and we're just going to get some kind of like consensus and like shared opinion and maybe just duke it out a bit in terms of talking and we just have feeling all kind of nice. Isn't that right, Tony? <laughs> That's actually really you nail you've nailed it there with the isn't that right? That's because it's 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 a little bit Kenneth Williams. Yeah. And 
it, it you know uh, quite a lot more particular Chris Barry in this style. That's very good, oh, and that, that's that's, that, that's exactly what we're going to do. Yes, yeah. I so because um, there's loads. To, there's, it, as with every one of the reasons I'm doing that other podcast is that there's so many things going on with sitcoms, and this is a good example of that for sure. Yeah, and if anyone's listened to this for the first time and have no idea what we're talking about, The British Empire is, in fact, a, a British sitcom. It was created by um, Andrew Norris and Richard uh, Fagan. who And Chris Chris Barry, who you might know as a character called Brimout on a TV show called Red Dwarf, um, was the titular character, Gordon Brittus, um, the well-intended but hugely incompetent manager of the fictional Whitbury Newtown Leisure Centre. Um, the show ran for seven series, so you're going to have six more of these. Um, and there's two yeah, sorry. specials. <laughs> there's two Christmas specials. And it ran from <laughs> 1991 to 1997 on BBC One. Norris and Fagan crowd out the first five the first five series and the series at one point peaked at 10 million viewers and it enjoys wow. a long and it's um it's a long and successful run and i think at the peak its popularity probably reached uh the higher popularity than red dwarf in terms of like how many people are watching it can can but with red dwarf i think there's been a lot more of a cult fan base and there probably yeah. wasn't 10 people watching it at the same time but it's one of these shows that red dwarf has probably lasted the test of time because of just how much it connects with people whereas at the time, The British Empire was probably one of the biggest sitcoms on the BBC. Um, and mm. Yeah, um, it's, at one point, it was hailed as the Faulty Towers of the 90s. Um, it was fast paid and it was noted on the best of the Britcoms, uh, which I, I think is an article somewhere. Uh, it was fast-paced, outrageous comedy full of invented gags, and it was massive. To put it into perspective, you would never see the cast of Red Dwarf do a three-minute sketch at the Royal Variety performance, one of the one of the specials on the DVD box set is a clip of a bit later on because of a because there's a character that gets introduced later on that appears in it. But they pretty much do a live three minute sketch um, as all the characters of the of the British Empire um, mm. at the Royal, Royal Variety performance. I don't see the Red Dwarf characters doing that, and the character of Gordon Brittus has appeared. He used to, um, Chris Barry used to appear in, char- in character on the um, Noel's House Party, um, knocking on the door, um, and there's a compila- there's compilations, of, there's quite a few of them actually, compilations where uh, you see uh, Chris Barry turn up in character on the, Noel- on the Noel's House Party. And for uh, international listeners who don't know what Noel's House Party is, it's very long and complex, but it was a massive Saturday night uh, show, which had which was like massively loads of like it was it was one of the big prime time shows of the nineties. And again, you wouldn't see the Red Dwarf characters show up on that either. So mm. that, that's the that's, that's so in terms of um, impact. But I think I don't think that the British Empire has a legacy that's lasted as long or a fan base as 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 strong as Red Dwarf, which um, no, no, um, Red and Red Dwarf just has that cult kind of like passionate fan base, and I think British Empire has its fans as well. But it just it does it hasn't lasted the test of time, it hasn't lasted the test of time, and uh, I mean like I and you can't really you probably wouldn't be able to see British Empire come back as as like well, Red Dwarf could do. It's funny you should say that though because there has been some talk of it that Chris Barry okay. last year. Chris Barry last year was saying that he thought there was mileage in coming back and doing more, and apparently the writers are developing a new script. Oh, okay. These these things are always these things. You hear this a lot though with sitcoms, and very rarely, especially with the gap of time, with something like this, do they ever really come of it. So I I wouldn't hold your breath, but I think because I think you're right in that 
you under, it's it's understandable why Red Dwarf comes back because Red Dwarf actually entered popular culture. It actually made a dent, even though it was a cult show. It it became a cult show in the vein of things in the eighties, a bit like the Young Ones and those kind of things, where people still remembered them. And obviously, Red Dwarf carried on, and like that show, Red Dwarf had has had a long shelf life. You know, if you if it's it's probably going to be in the running for one of the longest running sitcoms in British history, probably, if it carries on. Because over the span of it, it's been over three decades, even if it hasn't been every year. So mm-hmm. Britus just doesn't, Britus doesn't have that. It was one of those things that I think never really broke out into that kind of cultural footprint as Red Dwarf did, even though during the nineties, it was, it was very popular. It was, it, but it was, it was very much one of those sitcoms that the whole family would laugh at. You know, it's sort of thing my mum would have laughed at. My mum wouldn't, <laughs> my mum prob- wouldn't have got Red Dwarf, you know, where, and, and, you know this and some of the other people who make the show know this i'm a bit of a heretic because i haven't actually watched much red dwarf at all it's not that i don't like it i it's just i've just never done it so god knows what i'm doing on this podcast you're a madman for inviting me but yeah. uh, <laughs> but <laughs> you're the short straw everyone yeah, everyone else yeah. said no probably yeah last resort but I, yeah. I am i am looking forward to red dwarf and i definitely admire the reach that that show's had and it, and it is, it, there is a reason that something like Red Dwarf has lasted and Britas was popular, but it hasn't had that reach. And I think that's because there is probably a limit in many ways to where Britas went in terms of what it did, you know, and it, and it is of its time, you know, it is massively of its time. Yeah. Really. And, and I mean, there are, we, we'll get into a bit of the minutiae of things a bit later on, because there are interesting things about the show um, that we can talk about, which uh, we'll we'll bring up a bit later on but um again just to give a bit more background for people listening again um what i don't want to do is because we're planning on doing these individually i don't want to talk about future series because i do have vague recollections of stuff that happens there's at least a couple of episodes of the things that have never left my mind because of how big they are um and i'm not going to and they're quite spoilers if people aren't watching, but there's like, there are, cra- there's crazy things that happen. Uh, this, this, yeah, mm. th- this, <laughs> this actually, uh, at some points, the British Empire, um, goes beyond, goes beyond the realms of believability that even Red Dwarf does. But, um, uh, but yeah, and that's a science fiction show. But, uh, yeah, so to give a bit more background on this, uh, Gordon Britus is, is well meaning, but he's a bit of a com- incompetent manager with new. Leisure Centre. At the start of the series, um, he's just been assigned, and as as we find out, he's he's married, and, and his wife Helen is she's on the verge of a nervous breakdown, pretty much every, all the time because of because of being married to him. But um, and like the 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 very unsubtle suggestion is that she's very unhappy and pretty much constantly has affairs and um, all that kind of stuff. He's he's often support. Britus has two deputy managers. One Laura who is deputy manager dry which i think is like from what i gather it just means that she's in charge of all the uh dry stuff like all the tennis courts and the bantam squash mm. courts and all the gym stuff and you got colin um who's deputy manager wet who i believe which i'm assuming just means that he's just like in charge of the pool but and then there there are then there are there are several different um employees then you have tim and Gavin, who are kind of just attendants there, and we'll talk about them in a bit more detail later on. There's the 
very wild Linda, who I think almost has a sentence um, throughout the whole of the series, the first series. And there's Angie, who he's who is his secretary, who again hardly has anything to do in this, in the series. But then, but then something happens later on, which we won't get into again because of spoilers and stuff. Um, so I think that is the majority of the cast. Oh, oh no, and also there's the the receptionist um, Carol, who. Um, Again, someone else who looks like she's on the verge of a nervous breakdown um, has found out her husband's cheating on her and then has her ch- has a newborn children living in the drawers of reception. So just to give you an idea of the, the tone that this series has. Have I missed anyone? I don't think so. I think you've pretty much covered the regulars pretty pretty succinctly there yeah yeah so so the general so the general idea is that um british is supposed to be like well-meaning but then he's a stickler for all the rules he's uh he's like <laughs> he's, he seems to be like really into bureaucracy and like wanting to be a leader and stuff but uh people just find him really annoying and he's really because he's too into it and he can't read social cues almost um social cues and kind of has a strange idea of himself that's not fully true and the comedy comes from how he interacts with all these people who are bouncing off him and all that and hilarity that ensues afterwards as we think because we're not going to go through episode by episode we are talking about the, the series in this first series in general um what what were your initial thoughts after i'm assuming you this was not the first time you watched it or it's hard to say because it's been so long since I've watched it. I I, I really lo- I really enjoyed it when I was when I was young in the back in the nineties as a teenager. But it, I won't have watched it since then, and I can't remember particularly specific episodes. Probably in the same way you do. I remember the tone of it. I remember characters, uh, and so there were familiar aspects to it straight away. But I don't know if I have seen this season before. Actually, it's quite possible I haven't because. My memories of the show are definitely further down the line. There's one or two characters who aren't in this season that I remember. And I was a bit like, where's that character? Like They're not in this yet. So this, it's funny. I I, I, I think, well, actually, it's not particularly. <laughs> That's, right. So this is the thing. I didn't find it very fun. I didn't find it very funny. I found it very, I laughed. I, I, ch- I chuckled a, co- a few times, maybe half a dozen times throughout the entire six episodes. And I think... It's not that I didn't like it because I do like the show, but it is very classically in that mould of the British sitcom, particularly around this time. And you see that this in everything from Only Fools and Horses to One Foot in the Grave, all like classic sitcoms, but they have quite ropey first seasons. And it takes it takes a couple of years for them to get on their feet and start really showing what they can do. And I definitely felt that way about this. Definitely, because I don't. One of the big things that I I took from it was that I think a lot of it was informed by how much I remember the characters actually. So it was kind of, and it was quite nice seeing them kind of work them out. So and I admittedly, I kind of, I found myself having some really quite big belly laughs at some places, and I think that's because I had some familiarity with the characters in general. I was then struggling to try and, and then after a bit, I tried to step back and think about it a bit more logically and. Bits that I bits I found I quite laughed at because some of the jokes I found hit quite well and tickled my funny bone. But in terms of structure and how the characters and the premise is formed, I think there are actually a lot of rough ideas they haven't quite nailed properly yet. Mm. And 
it's 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 there's, there's, there are shades there are shades in which the roles of what the characters should be in regards to how they revolve around Britus, and they only start showing up in like the, the last episode of stuff, the last episode of the series. Now, for example, mm. um, Julius and John plays Laura. Now, Julius and John is the only other actress aside from Chris Barry who is billed in in um, on the actual DVD on DVDs, mm. and like so. And so Laura's given like this like key role, and from what I remember, she's supposed to be the the straight character to Gordon Brittus. Mm. And um, I don't think the series gets her gets her correct until she has this quite good scene at the very end of the series, in the end of the first series, where Brittus is <laughs> in a hosp- in a hostel bed, where she says that that she she believes that he's actually kind hearted and has the has the right intentions. But the complete opposite approach to executing those intentions, but then and then doesn't get the chance to kind of bounce off the her straight, uh, her straight man characteristics against his buffoonery or his comic uh, sensibilities, so, so to speak. Um, and so and that should really have been kind of established in the first episode. Whereas, whereas like throughout the series, you get bits where it doesn't really click on how I remember the character. There's a bit in the second episode where I think through through a series of errors, most a series of situations, um, Britus ends up ends up inadvertently causing the electrocution of one of Laura's friends or romantic interests or whatever. And there's a bit where she gets quite really hostile towards him. And I can't remember her ever being like that anywhere else. Mm. So you can kind of see that they don't fully understand, fully figured out how the characters or the cast work around him yet. It, I feel like they they know they know the basic archetypes because yeah. one of the things that's been pointed out is that Britus is very much in the mold of that traditional sitcom character described as uh, an incompetent in charge of others. So you're talking about people like Captain Mannerin from Dad's Army, Captain Peacock from Are You Being Served? They're these kind of imperious... It's interesting because they're all these kind of imperious colonial characters mm-hmm. who are just buffoons, but they actually think that they... And they, they're very serious and they take everything very seriously and they're very intense and they're just idiots and they keep getting shown up for, for who they are. Britus is, a, is along similar lines. He's not necessarily as hard in some ways as they are um, or as colonial, but there is that level of, you know... Britus, well, we, for him, it's that he's an absolute sort of ultra Jobsworth kind of technocrat in what he does. Yeah. But then Laura is very much the, if you're using the Dad's Army comparison, she's the Wilson. She's John yes. Le in that, you know, and that's, and that's, but in, very early on in Dad's Army, you understood the dynamic between Mannerin and Wilson. Wilson was the deadpan sort of, you know, guy opposite him. Whereas it's not quite been figured out yet with, Laura, you're right. And I, I I really think it's one of those examples. And you, again, you see this in all the different shows that I mentioned before and lots more. Usually they have the basics on paper, but it takes the char- it takes the actors to really gel with the characters and then they yeah. write into those characteristics. And I think they wrote into Julia St. John. And I think I think the only two characters I think that are fully there, by and large, is Britus. No, tell a lie, three. I think there's three characters who are pretty much fully there. Britus, Carol, and Colin. I think those three, yeah. you can see, they, they don't, they're not really much different throughout the whole series, to be honest. Everyone else is sort of being figured out and you see aspects of them. But then really, Britus, Carol, and Colin are probably the three key comedy characters in the whole show. I mean, you could argue that Helen is, 
but they haven't quite got her yet because eventually Pippa Haywood goes fucking off a rocker, you know, <laughs> as the yeah. show goes on and she becomes increasingly neurotic and bonkers. And she's brilliant at that. I mean, you saw her do that fantastically then in Greenwing where she kind of just took a lot of that character and just did it again mm-hmm. in that show. Um, but they, they need to write into the actors. And I think that's something that definitely happens. And it might, I don't know if it happens in season two. We'll find out, you know, if it happens fairly, fairly quickly, but it's definitely not quite there yet with this. Yeah, I, I can tell you, I can see that. And I think, um, again, I don't think the role, I don't think the roles of how the characters that interact with British were solidified across the whole of the ensemble. Um, cause I was trying to figure out Colin's role. And I think Colin is, possibly representative of the type of character that would actually get on Britus's nerves. And because I think Britus Britus is someone who's, who sees himself as getting on with everyone. Um but I think there's supposed to be someone in the cast who tests that, but but it happens to be the like the one character who's absolutely devoted to him in terms of who's who actually would treat him with the respect that he wants to be seen by everyone else. The well, only- he's, well he's Pike. Colin's Pike. If you go yeah. back to Dad's army again, it's that whole you know, he wants to please me. Oh, Mr. Britus, he wants to please yes. me all the time. And he's like, oh, Colin, uh, you know. It's, it's, yeah. yeah. But I think it's quite interesting that, I, yeah, I think it's not, it's all, it's like 95% there where like the one character who will actually, will actually treat him with respect, with respect that Britus wants the respect of, if that makes sense, mm. is, the, is, is, the, is the type of character that would actually push Britus's buttons. And that's yeah, uh, yeah. And I, I do I quite like the dynamic between them for that. In terms of like, well, you ha- do have one member of staff that doesn't treat you like an idiot, <laughs> but you treat, yeah. but you treat, but you don't treat him with respect. So it's, uh, mm. but yeah, yeah. but I mean, Colleen's one of the characters that's always stuck in my head as well. Um, so he's it's he's visually he visually stands out. He's got um, I can't remember if it's this series or not, but he has like a yellow cardigan, which makes him stand out towards the turquoise <laughs> of. I think there's a, there's a turquoise um, blazer of um, mm. that's not turquoise. They put like a dark blue blazer that uh, Britus wears. You have the kind of dark blue like hoodie that Laura always constantly wears. And then you have the very aqua color um, blending of the rest of the of the, of the staff. Um, so Colin does have like a kind of unique visual look to him, but he always looks kind of dirty anyway, and he visually stands out. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he's 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 meant he's meant to be a bit of a grotesque really. Yeah. But he, he's he's that he's very there and there like with most sitcoms there's absolutely some class stuff going on here. You know, he's he's northeastern, right? And he's the he's the shabby northerner, you know, who's just a little bit dim-witted ostensibly and a bit weird and a bit dirty. Um and everyone else is very sort of middle class and southern, aren't they? You know. Yeah. And it, 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 for me that that's definitely I don't know if that would quite be written in the same way anymore. You know, there is, there is, for me, there's absolutely a bit of a class divide thing going on there. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I think, um, I think, the, I don't think the class divide is as big in this series as it would be for, for other series. No, no, definitely. Yeah. yeah. And I'm pretty sure that the class divide is something that I've, I'm pretty sure you've written about in the past, or at least as made Probably, reference to. somewhere. <laughs> or the north south north south divide at least you know that the difference between those two sort of sub british subcultures in yeah. a way you know and it, it's because it's very much that kind of the british empire is very much that southern british bbc sitcom style of comedy you know yes uh it, it's not really it doesn't ever feel like it's placed anywhere in particular it doesn't have a particularly definitive location like like you would get with 
say Only Fools and Horses, which is very London, you know, or you would get with Rab C. Nesbitt, which is very Scottish, you know, or, or whatever. It doesn't really have that that place, that sense of place necessarily. Yeah. So, th- and, uh, and that seemed probably intentional. Yeah, I think I think the closest geographic location we get, I think, and um, I can't remember if it was actually on screen or whether it's referenced in a future series, so forgive, forgive me if he's that. I think, because I think he recently trained at Aldershot, which... Um, I right. believe is within Hampshire, so Kent. Uh, Aldershot is in a town in the Rushmore district of Hampshire, so it is on. The, oh, okay. So, right. Um, I take. It, I, I stand corrected. I always thought it was, but yeah, again, I mean, no, no offense to anyone in Hampshire, but like, d- does Aldershot really stand out like to anyone? <laughs> is it one of those places where you go, oh, you're from Aldershot? No, you just don't. Just, not is it it's not one of those kind of places sorry for all the older shot listeners i've just said your town is boring but you know prove me wrong <laughs> come at me but yeah but yeah so um going through going through the, the rest of the cast then before we go back to talking about it in general tim and gavin is one of the elements that i think when i first watched watched it i never fully clocked on of what it is what it was until i was much much older uh when mm. rewatching it and i never and it, and rewatching the first series, I was kind of I thought that it was a lot more subtle than it actually is. But considering this was 1991, the characters of Gavin and Tim are actually uh, a couple. So they're two men um, in a relationship, and it's not explicitly said that they're gay. But I do think that for the purpose for the purpose of uh, representation, I think it is revealed that Tim is bisexual in a future series. So, um, right. and the reason I mention that now is that you have a bisexual character and a gay character in a BBC One primetime sitcom in January 1991. Mm. And neither of them are leaping, uh, are a caricature that you would get. So you don't have James Dreyfus in Gimme, Gimme, Gimme. It's not John Inman. It's not your stereotypical. Character, uh, gay character that you would expect that you would be seeing at this at this time. I mean, ten ten years down the line, you would have a you'll have in coupling. There's an episode where uh, I think one of the, uh, I think Jane tries to seduce tries to seduce a gay man, and again he he, he dips into your stereotypical um, camp effeminate um, gay character archetype that you have here. You have two characters that don't dip into that, and which. Which for me, I, I I think is quite amazing in the nineties. Well, I mean, I, I, in a way, I hesitate. I hesitate to be too authoritative on this because I'm not a gay man. You're not a gay man, and we we don't know we don't know how this would be approached by the LGBTQ community, particularly now. But I I I I would say from the outside perspective that there's two ways to look at it. I think the 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 one way to look at it is. Are they really being written as gay characters or are they, is it that very sort of old school, uh, oh, we, we, we're two men and we live together, you know, kind of thing in that there's not really, there's there's a suggestion of homosexuality, but it's all very, you know, like two male friends, a bit Cliff Richardy, you know, <laughs> that whole thing, the whole bachelor boy thing. Or is it actually quite, quite good in the idea that it actually, it doesn't make them stereotypes, as you say. It doesn't make them caricatures. And it doesn't even necessarily massively draw attention to it all the time, which is which is great. You know, ultimately, that's surely where we want to get to with with fiction, with storytelling, and with representation, that it's not a, a something to stick out as an 
as an other, you know, as, as something abnormal. So I suppose I, I, I'm sort of caught between the two because I'm not entirely convinced that, that B, the BBC in the 90s were that progressive. But no. at the same time, <laughs> I mean, in terms of- at the same time, it's better than you would have had yeah. for most of the time. I mean, it, I mean, that in terms of a base level, I, I I was quite surprised that how like how it was represented. However, it, it later in the series, later in the series, they do kind of verge into um, into more stereotypes. And again, as two straight two straight men being obviously the obviously the authority i decided you know what i'll go and speak to mark i i'll i asked mark to watch the first series um so mark at mark mm. adams who one of your regular hosts um and out gay man for seven for uh for several decades now I, I i asked him for his opinions because again he said we're not the authority the authority so i'd rather get his opinion on on the represent on the on how Gavin and Tim relationship was developed, and I've got and I'll read out what he sent me. So, okay, um, some thoughts on Tim and Gavin. The show must be championed for the first ever sympathetic, openly gay couple on a British sitcom. As a kid, I didn't spot that they were a couple like you didn't, but it's hardly subtle. Um, but he then goes on. I was, I was disappointed that the stereotype of gay men cheating or, or promiscuity appeared so early in episode two. Um, I feel that British obliviousness is actually pretty accurate and indicative of the time. It's not that he's homophobic, it's that he's completely aware of the situation through his own inexperience and encountering of any gay people. Um, then, um, but he only, had, he only watched the first three episodes. So, and because there's a, there's a bit in episode six, which I kind of want to talk about because it, it kind of damages British's premise as a character in, in a way. And it, it's just any kind of it's manipulative to get to the plot, but um, we'll talk about that in a second. Um, so Britis has a conversation with Gavin about Tim, and he raises suspicions that Tim is a bit, um, and kind of does that kind of like, kind of cringeworthy kind of like eyebrow raise, um, uh, eyebrow yeah. raise, and then has then basically suggests that he'll be hanging around the changing rooms in the showers and perving, which not really a good look for a British sitcom from any sort of character, uh, and to. Quote Mark, it made my skin crawl, but I've seen worse homophobia in Only Fools and Horses. Yeah, um, no, I, oh God, yeah. I mean, really, I mean that is a whole other conversation, and it's something we might get into on my other on my other show. Yeah, but Only Fools is really homophobic now. I mean, when you look back at it, and it is it, it, it's got actual slurs in proper slurs, mm-hmm. and watching that back now really makes you wince. If you if you're the kind of person who finds this problematic i.e not a twat then um <laughs> then yeah you know it, it does and, and so yeah this is this and i'm glad uh, it's great to hear from mark there because he absolutely his opinion is absolutely i would say much more valid in many ways than ours on this and yeah. it's great to hear that because i think it it, it, it's, it must be very interesting as a gay person to watch something like this which It'd be, I'd, I'd love to. I'd love to speak to the writers about it, to be honest, and find out more because I'd love to know what their perspective was in what they were trying to do. Whether this was intentional, whether it was accidental, whether it was just they were really trying to push push the envelope in the limited way they could at a time when you just didn't see this. Yeah. Like <laughs> it just didn't exist in the BBC's, you know, field of vision. In these kind of ways, but um, Russell Porter, who plays Tim, um, uh, um, is a is a gay a gay man himself, and um, there is 
there's an article I think on theguyuk.com where he's uh, he speaks to them and he says that um, he he believes that him and Gavin will be together twenty years down the line, and um, he says that at the time I didn't get the sense of how important it would be as a gay man myself. I wanted to as much as you can in fast. To be fair to the characters, it wasn't the gay thing that was the issue. It was the not understanding the gay issue, and that's the gag. When auditioning, when auditioning for the part, I said, "Don't ask me to be any more." any more gay or camp than i am already i am not going down that route so um so yeah so i mean i i i'd say i never realized that russell Porter himself was gay and stuff and it's quite interesting to hear him talk about how he was approaching that and stuff and particularly gay in early 90s but um no i completely agree it'll be interesting to see what the creative decisions were with that and again i wonder whether that's a case of writing to the actors as you said earlier so perhaps with porter there saying that he didn't want to perhaps didn't want to be the stereotype or act the stereotype so he was pretty much being himself yeah maybe which is great which is great um i'm, I'm gonna be i'm gonna be curious to see how it develops as the seasons go on actually and what if there is any change in that relationship yeah definitely um other characters that there we um we have carol the receptionist now played by uh, harriet thorpe um, harriet thorpe is awesome she she is such a great comic actor like we, she she's not she's not massively in loads and loads of things but i used to love it when she pop up in absolutely fabulous because she was really funny in that as well it's like she is so good like carol carol is the character for me that just stands out really she's probably my favorite character in this because she's it's just the way she's played is, is so good um yeah there's the um I think there's an episode like halfway through the episode, and one of the better episodes of the series, of this series actually, I think it's the third episode with the anger management um, seminar, uh, where mm. pretty much Britus manages to get the anger management talk speaker to have a bit, have like a massive rage tantrum. Um, but there's a bit where <laughs> where her husband comes back and wants to reconcile and says sorry, and there is just a, a massive physical change in how she. She like she shape shifts her whole body language, her voice tone, and like it's it's like mm. a different character. It's the the only other thing the only thing I can think of is there's a scene in Superman two where Christopher Reeve man merges from he's playing Clark Kent, um and takes his like and when Lewis Lois Lane's not looking kind of shifts normal and he kind of like advances he like grows a foot. And his voice gets confidence, yeah. and it feels like a different person has just morphed into the room, and that's and that's that's what she does uh, in that in that like yeah. half an yeah, episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, Mark Mark did also mention Carol, and um, has as um, he mentions the the eighties and the nineties ick with Red Dwarf, he does raise potential nineties ick with Carol in that he didn't find it very funny in terms of in terms that it was kind of mocking. Or not mocking. The comedy was coming from an antenatal depression, which I mm. never, I never thought it might have been a point. And and then looking at it, I was like, ah, oh, crap. <laughs> I don't know. I th- I think it's a good, it's an interesting point, and I th- I think comedy is there to be unpicked, and and you do see things differently with with time and distance. And I think I I I wouldn't. It's not something that for me stood out, but then I it probably wouldn't. 
you know i think it, it's it, it maybe might not be on my radar so i think it perhaps it's a tricky it's an interesting one it's it's an interesting one it, it's 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 probably not something many people have brought up because britus hasn't really had much in the way of critical reappraisal so you know um I, it would be interesting particularly to see what what a female perspective on on carol is actually and that whole thing now yeah that should be interesting to that particularly particularly with how it developed how the character develops because I think Carol's one of the more one of the more memorable characters. I think a lot of stuff that happens with her, I still have memories of what happens to her. Whereas I think some other characters, um, I don't. <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah. Um, I think the the there's the character of Linda, who is one of the main cast and has about a sentence an episode. So we don't. Yeah, she's, she's, <laughs> she's supposed to be there, really, is that? She's supposed yeah. to be the kind of enthusiastic peppy, and I think yeah. is supposed to be someone who, I think, from what I remember from later seasons, her role is supposed to be someone who is just kind of enthusiastic and mm. doesn't hate Britus but doesn't like him either, um, and, and just and is just there to do the job and likes doing the job, but you do not get any of that whatsoever. No, I, I think. Maybe it's that she's underwritten. Yeah. Maybe it's the actor who is not necessarily the strongest. But yeah, she's okay, but she always fades into the background, really, doesn't she? To yeah. To be fair. Yeah. And I think finally, if we want, if I think finally we also will talk a bit more about <clears throat> the character of Helen, who, character of Helen, who um, is uh, British's wife. And um, she, <clears throat> again, she, I think she's supposed to be kind of like, Un, not unhinged, but she's unhappy, um, possibly depressed. But um, and in a marriage that she trapped in a marriage she doesn't like, but doesn't want to be in, and thus has yeah. affairs with um, the code word is Uncle Simon. Um, in a <laughs> yeah, yeah, which and Britus doesn't just doesn't clock on whatsoever. And again, I think we've as you said before, uh, Helen's a character who I think late. I think they kind of get a feel for. Pippa Haywood as a, an actress, and she does okay here. She does okay here. I just don't think they get and said so don't they don't get Helen complete yet. Um, well, uh, I mean, for one thing, she like every other word out of her mouth fails the Bechdel test. For one thing, <laughs> like all she ever does is talk about Gordon. Yeah. Like ev- every conversation she has is about Gordon, and in fact, she has quite a lot of conversations with a friend or with other people. That actually explain him and his psyche to us. Yeah, it, she becomes she becomes a mechanism for that actually throughout this season. Yeah, she's a mechanism for explaining his backstory, how they met, what kind of person he is, and and she kind of I I felt that she be, she's quite unsympathetic in a way here because the idea is that she's supposed to be this tortured wife living with this you know tyrannical mm-hmm. Roman emperor in a leisure center who is completely neglectful. But I didn't always get that because then she's going off and sleeping with somebody else. And I was a bit like, well, he's not, he's not a horrible person. He's not a horrible bad guy. He's, he's an idiot and he's, he's a pompous blowhard who is addicted to his work. Yeah. But I didn't necessarily feel the sympathy. And I feel that maybe later on, as Britus becomes a bit, and, and as he becomes more and more down that road and he gets ever more sort of Britusy and she gets ever more sort of neurotic and tragic, it works a bit better that you actually feel that she's like trapped in this horrible situation. It gets more and more eccentric. 
But I didn't really get that here. And I just felt like she was just a little bit, sometimes a bit of a cow, <laughs> actually. And how she, how she was at sleeping with somebody else. I didn't, she wasn't necessarily the, the victim that maybe they tr- thought she was. Yeah. Really. I, yeah. I, there are times I think where, I think Gordon, uh, I keep saying Gordon, I think, where Brittus is, there are parts where Brittus is seen as being actually completely devoted to his wife. He just, yeah. he just can't. And like, he, he, he constantly, he constantly talks, talks her up. And, uh, there are like times where he, he does give her praise, even give her, he misreads stuff as praise or no, misreads mm. stuff and constantly like, gives her praise and stuff and like says he's like, and like talks her up quite a lot. There's, there's a great, I think it's episode four or five, um, where they go to, um, Helen's counselor for marriage counseling and the, mm. and Brittus's, and Brittus' role as perhaps one of the first examples of mansplaining is really applied here. He's, he's, the prin- he's, he's the principal mansplainer, actually, when you think about it. But the unmalicious mansplainer. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. where I, he doesn't realise what he's doing. He's got no kind no. of self-awareness. Um, no. Where so like where, whenever the, whenever they mention she, the counsellor tries to speak to Helen, he, he answers for her and stuff and... You can get some sympathy for her back. You can get some sympathy the, yeah. for her. But in that, yeah, yeah. But um, you get the, but you do get that impression. You, can, you can't, you, you can kind of get that impression of um, of how much he kind of misreads what he should be doing with his relationship and stuff. But um, I th- again, I think she's that she's there. The sketch of the characters there, and what they're trying to do with that is there. The idea that she's married to this. Man, and she says it in one of the episodes that he wasn't always like this. You know, when they were younger, and this happens so often when you get these, you you you'll introduce a sitcom scenario, and there it's a marriage or a relationship, and it's a, at a particular stage where one of them. And the, and there's a good, another good example of this, one that actually is quite similar, is the Thin Blue Line. Have you seen the Thin Blue Line with Rowan? Yes, Atkinson? yes. The relationship between his character Raymond Fowler in that and and his his partner, I can't remember her name now, the character. Um, but yeah, she is, it's a very, very similar dynamic. He is oblivious. He's de- dedicated to his work. She wants passion. She wants romance. She wants him to love her and he completely misses it all the time. And that's where the comedy comes from. It's slightly different in that show, but it's a similar idea and you get it in a lot of, you get it in a lot of shows. And, and, and I think it's a good comedy idea. And, and, and Britus does, the show does go in to get to that. It does well, much more with that, and it's much better as time goes on. But at the beginning, like a lot of the things in the show, it is, it is, it is an outline, and it's not fully shaded in. And, and again, I think it's the characters. I think the characters bring it out. And you see it in some of those scenes. You see it in the counselling scene, which is a good example of where you do feel a bit for Helen, because he, he is... He is quite bullish and old school and he's he is talking for his wife and all those kind of things. But yeah, I think it takes a while for them to get to that point where it fully clicks together. Yeah, they also completely steal or it's either a reference or they steal completely nearly word for word a joke from Red Dwarf. So oh, okay, I'm, well, that's got that's got to be done, isn't it? If it's Chris Barry. <laughs> right, I'm going to read to you the quote from Red Dwarf and you'll get, get it. Give that scene in mind. So, Rimmer, I used to be with the Samaritans. Lister, I know, for one morning, well, I couldn't take it anymore. I don't blame you. You spoke to five people and they all committed suicide. I wouldn't mind, but one was the wrong number. You only found up for the cricket stores. <laughs> cricket scores. 
which, exa- <laughs> which exactly is very similar to the conversation that Helen has with the um, psychiatrist where he goes, yeah. then he mentions he worked with Samaritans and then uh, when they're on their own, he goes, he worked for the Samaritans. Oh yeah. He only worked for one day. Um, five Samaritans. Like, uh, five people commit, five people found up committed suicide, but only one of them was the wrong number. Um, yeah, it's the exact same joke. <laughs> <laughs> they used the exact same joke and it can't be, it can't be a yeah. coincidence. So, uh, yeah. Can, can we, can we just, can we just stop and talk a little bit about your attempted Craig Charles impression there? Yes. <laughs> my, 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 my scouse accent. <laughs> I don't blame there you. A, there was a, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, good. All right, I don't blame you. Fine. You spoke to five people. Who my... <laughs> <laughs> there, have been wor- there have been worse attempts at the scouse accent on this podcast, not by oh, me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, sure, yeah. That's fine. But, um, yeah, yeah. Just... yeah. Yeah. Wine. Drinking wine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm bare I can, I can, Stop now. Yeah. I've unleashed Pandora's box. Stop. It's 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 okay. Uh, Kurt Kurt's going to hear that, and he's going to start just listening to this, muttering the word wine, <laughs> <laughs> drinking wine. <laughs> Sorry, Kurt. Um. <laughs> In terms of things overall, overall, and Britus as a character, and a bit more into him and stuff, is that as you said, you can easily compare him to other British characters in sitcom in like sitcom history um there's uh for example if you compare him to rimmer um which i know a character that i know you're all familiar with tony as you said earlier um <laughs> I, I i've watched i've watched enough of it to know the character what the character's like don't worry i've got i've got a good idea yeah don't worry. yeah so there's a common thread in that they can both be self-serving but I do think that um, Britus has a lot more. Uh, Britus has, if not selfless, a more positive and more noble idea of what that self-serving means. So I, I, I've always thought, always thought, if a, if a child went up to both characters and they said that they were their inspiration, I believe it would both make it would probably make both characters days. However. I think Britus would care about the well-being of that person that said to him, and like I, whereas Rimmer would just think that Rimmer wouldn't. Rimmer would just go, "Oh yeah, that was me," and just like not mm. and not and, and not bother, and then forget the person and forget the kid's name, like a second later. Yeah. Whereas Britus, you could probably Britus, I think would would be like the people like uh, those teachers who keep keep saying, "Oh, please let me know how you're getting on." Um, and like, would it be act? And if it'd be twenty years, and then if and if they turned up, he'd, British would remember everything that he remembers about that person that said that to him. Whereas Rimmer would probably just forget it ever happened. Um, so it's that kind of, which, and which I think is um, interesting when when you compare them both of them as well. Whereas when you got the more noble character of Britus, the more realistic character is Rimmer. <laughs> probably the more tragic yeah. character as well. So um, yeah. So I think Britus is a Britus is a he's an archetype dialed up for comic effect. You know, he's not he's not a real person. I mean, and that that's that's the thing. It's like this is where I think Britus Empire and maybe it's one of the reasons why it hasn't necessarily stood the test of time in the same way as some of the other mainstays of comedy in that I don't, and and I might be proven wrong with this because it's been a while, but I don't really necessarily think he has that level of grounded sort of reality to him that you would see in a Del Boy or you would see in a Victor Meldrew, where even though they're often in heightened comedy scenarios, there is either a tragedy to them or there is a real genuine aspect. Yes, okay, there are people like Britus. There are these imperious, 
you know, slightly pompous do-gooders who, who, but who also just run staff in a really sort of self-oblivious way. And, you know, the, it is, it, uh, there is absolutely connective tissue between this and David Brent in the yes, office. Yes, yes. Because, because there re- yeah, there really is. Because you can definitely see the same kind of archetypes and things going on. Um, there's probably even a bit of Alan Partridge in Britus as well. You know, and... and uh, well, well Britus in Alan Partridge, I should say, because Britus came first. So there, there are definite sort of inspirations and things that I think people would have seen this kind of character, but he's not real. And I think that's the whole thing in that the the reason I don't think this season works as well is that they haven't yet figured out that fully, and there are, there are, sh- there are moments of this, but they haven't yet figured out that because Britus is hyper real, the show can be. And then later on, as it goes on, it becomes increasingly bonkers. Yes. And it can do it, you know, it can do it because it might as well be a parallel universe sometimes. Oh, yeah. I, and there are there are moments of it in this season, but they haven't quite figured that out yet. Oh, there are. I, yeah, I don't want to spoil it for anyone who, if anyone's listening to this thinking, oh, OK, and and want and perhaps want to listen, watch a few more beyond this. I won't, don't want to spoil it. But there are there's specific there's a specific development that that's always stay with me and i uh, that is so bonkers it's like it's what i was alluding to before it's so bonkers and yeah. how they resolve it is frankly ridiculous that it it, it puts it puts british empire on a whole nother level in terms of the the reality of it and as mm. i was saying earlier i mean if you compare again it's it reaches levels of of like comic fantasy in places where yeah, it's, yeah, it's, totally. It's, it's absurdity. Not, it's not completely absurdity, so it doesn't evolve into like Family Guy, or it doesn't um, doesn't evolve into like Family Guy style like absurdity. But there are things, there are kind of like moments in the comedy here that just are, are too absurd that Red Dwarf wouldn't touch. Red, Red Dwarf, as much as it's a science fiction show, has elements is kind of grounded in that you could theoretically think. That with science, with science, things in Red Dwarf could actually happen. Whereas there yeah, are yeah, bits, yeah, yeah. there are bits, there are loads of things that will happen in the British Empire that would never happen. Where it's impossible, no. it would have happened. Um, and mm. th- yeah, I, 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 I'm hoping you know which thing I'm talking about because it's a massive thing that happens. Uh, I might have an idea, but don't spoil it because I'm looking forward to rediscovering some of this bit fresh myself. So it, it's, I've it's, got it's, an idea. It doesn't happen for a while yet, but um, yeah, yeah. So yeah, so and and I think I think one of the last things I want to talk about talk about as well. You brought up is that there are a lot of parallels to like David Brent um, in terms of that, but um, again and again with the office because at the time of recording and probably the time of airing as well, you're you've just started on your own kind of like writing blog, going through the ep- the episodes of the UK Office and dissect mm. and and. They're fascinating reads. I, I fully recommend listening to them because um, they are pretty much devoted Thanks. to the psychology behind David Brent, and um, it's quite interesting to read that comparing to the characters because I think there's there's not really been a, a comic character and like David Brent, and it'll be very hard to find another one like him. And but and I think w- there are elements between the two of, of Brent and Britus, but. Brent is someone who 100% will exist. You will know someone exactly, exactly like Brent. Whereas you'll have mm. Tracy's, you'll have Britus who go, oh yeah, you remind us of so-and-so who at work and stuff. But like, 
there is a much more possibility you will find someone who is 100% David Brent rather than 10% mm. Gordon Brittus. Yeah, but it, and, and the diff, I think the difference is, and, and there is, there is, and you might have mentioned this earlier, but there is going the other way, very clear connective tissue to Faulty Towers and to Basil yes. Faulty with this. Yeah. But the difference is, I think, and this is where Brittus does its own thing in the end from both of these shows in that the office is much more about the observational reality of a, you know, that show is all possible. You know, there's nothing in the office that is hyper real. Everything that happens in that show could happen and probably has happened in offices around this country. Yes. And that's where the comedy comes from. Uh, whereas in Faulty Towers, again, it's it's a hyper real world. You know, that it is su- it is such a contained pressure cooker environment that yes, that, that person did kind of exist because the Pythons met him. And they made, and John Cleese turned him into that character. But really, you could, you know, you could never put Basil Faulty in a different place. You know, he exists purely in that. And in a way, Brittus is the same. Brittus exists in that leisure centre. You couldn't, it would be weird to put Brittus running a hotel or doing something, because he's very specific in that location. But what I think the British Empire doesn't have yet, it doesn't have the pressure cooker environment to evoke Faulty Towers' level of farce. Yeah. You know, it tries in the first season to build to levels of farce, but it doesn't quite work. It nearly, um, I think episode two, it it almost gets it right because it has the, yeah. it has the, um, the, uh, the boy, the boiler engineer. Um, and yeah, I think because, yeah. because yeah. there's an issue with the, because yeah. there's an issue with the pool, he think, um, he starts to believe, he starts to have like PTSD flashbacks, um, and thinks that, He's on a ship and it's sinking because the boiler room. Well, yeah, that's, but that's it. But he's he's portrayed very specifically like a like a salty dog seaman, like in the bowels of an engine room in a in a big ship, isn't he? You know, yeah, that's the whole joke is that he's portrayed like that. And it, again, he wouldn't exist in the real world. You wouldn't have <laughs> that character in a boiler room in a leisure centre who looks like that. And that's the whole thing. That's those are the moments in this season where I was like, that's what this show is. That, that that's the point that's what i want this show to really lean into and it does from what i remember as time goes on yeah. and it dials up the it dials up the surrealism i think that's the key faulty towers wasn't surrealist it was farcical the office is observational and painful whereas britus is surrealist and i think once it realizes that and it and it realizes what it can do it takes off whereas right now it's sort of trapped in a bit of a cozy you know, laughter track paradigm where things get to a certain level. You get a lot of Chris Barry, who is great. There's no getting away from that. He is he is spot on as Britus pretty much from day one, doing a lot of the yes, Carol, but kind of thing. And yeah. that that they that is up all enough to a certain point, but you need everything else around it, and that's not quite there yet. So once they get to that, once they figure that out, it really takes off. Yeah, and. I, I I can't wait to see because I was really tempted to start watching series two after um finished series one because I've 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 got series one and th- one to three on DVD and mm. I managed to stop myself from advancing to watch series two um so because I was I was getting into it. I mean there, there are I, I said there are issues with it uh, there are issues with it um, bits that haven't dated as well as it should do but I think because I, I I kind of grew I had that kind of growing up attachment to it I was kind of there are bits that I found quite hilarious i mean the third I, th- I thought the third episode i thought was bloody hilarious with the um with the anger management 
um, the Angus Management uh, seminar. That that was that was probably the I that probably is the one the funniest. Yeah, yeah, I would say that's probably the funniest one of the, yeah. of the six. Yeah, but I think you put again. I think a lot of it was the, kind of to do with like how the characters work and stuff, how the characters work and how things kind of disconnect and stuff. And um, I think before mm. we leave, before we leave, I think um, the only thing I just want to briefly mention is that I think there's almost almost attempts at serialization in places. The first two are kind of like you couldn't watch episode two without watching episode one because it kind of because mm. they kind of still haven't opened by series episodes two. Um, so the kind of, the whole plot of episode two is them opening. So like they're kind of just building, they're kind of like getting preparation for the opening in episode one. And um, mm. but I, it kind of falls a little bit by um, the assassin assassin episode, which is the final episode of the series, where it looks like someone's trying to kill Britus. And mm. if they had the, the foresight, there's a couple of people, like particularly I think there's a couple of people in the first episode where or first episode or like at least second or third that, that theoretically could have been nice to have been the person tempted to kill him. But then it but the way the way the plot's structured, it turns out to be someone who you have no you, you don't see until the reveal. You've never seen them before. And then there's this whole backstory about apparently that Gort Britus is part of a church choir and that this guy who's mm. trying to kill him is a, and it just falls flat. Falls flat. This person yeah. knows yeah, Ga- the person knows Gavin and um I think Gavin and there's the plot needs the plot kind of needs Gavin to kind of help Britus help Britus get in the line of sight of this assassin which is when the which is when the whole very uncomfortable conversation about Tim happens um so um mm. yeah but it just it yeah the pay the payoff just doesn't work it doesn't work and it's there are, there are bits like bits throughout the first series of this where it's like if a bit more foresight the payoff could have been a lot better in so the but the plot just doesn't land properly no and and that's where i think the writing doesn't really hold up, to be honest, and I think that definitely seems to improve as time goes on. But the the, the writing isn't quite sharp enough yet in order for what is a talented cast to really make the most of it. And I think the writing does sharpen up for sure as time goes on. Yeah, and that as as, as time goes on, I'm quite I am actually still looking forward to watching the rest. Um, so, and I think that's a good point to kind of end that conversation about the first series of the British Empire. Mm. And um, I hope that you've enjoyed the conversation that we've had. And I hope uh, people listening. And I hoped, well, I don't really care if you like if you like it, Tim Tony. So uh, you only hear. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. I'm only the guest. Yeah, you know, you're don't, only the don't guest. treat me with any respect. Yeah, that's fine. You've hardly, yeah, yeah you hardly watched Red Dwarf. I'm surprised we let you on. But no, but no, I, <laughs> it's true. Yeah, but no, um, I want to say thank you ever so much for coming on, Tony, and um, it's been great chatting with you. And ever so looking forward to listening to you have been watching, because uh, that sounds great. But before we sign off, I'm sure as well there are other podcasts that you're involved in. Why don't you tell people where you can find them and where they can find you online? Well, the best place to find me is mainly on Twitter is where I hang about a lot. So check me out on Twitter at AJ Black Writer. You'll find links to various things. My The blog you mentioned where I'm doing reviews of The Office and various other things is called The Truth Is Out. Uh, the Truth Is In Here. Not The Truth Is Out There. That's because it's a play on that. The Truth Is In Here.co.uk, uh, which is my blog space uh, where I'm doing yeah write-ups of The Office, the UK Office, so you might enjoy those. And or I'm on lots of different podcasts at various points, you can find You Have Been Watching Soon on We Made This, the podcast network, 
shipwrecked and comatose is part of. Find us at WNT underscore network on Twitter and we made this network.com uh, for all the other kind of things I'm on. So yeah, that's me. Yeah, you can find me uh, under Pick a Disc because that's the podcast that I host when I'm not um, disrupting the flow of Shipwrecked and Comatose. Um, <laughs> you can find us anywhere on your favourite podcast app of choice or Facebook, Twitter and Instagram under Pick a Disc. Um, so yeah, you can follow me on that there. Also, but if you want to, you can always get in contact with the Shipwrecked and Comatose um, Twitter account, which is at Red Dwarf Pod. Uh, I hope because I just suddenly lost the page it had that information on. So um, <laughs> I'm sure I'm I'm sure I'll be hearing from Mark and Kurt very shortly saying you've got the Twitter name wrong, but I'm pretty sure it's Red Dwarf Pod because it because we managed to nab it. Um, yeah, and you can find us on podcast apps of choice as well. Um, so I, I I do hope that you've enjoyed. Um, either revisiting or discovering the British Empire. If you if you used to watch it, um, please let us know um, how right we are or how wrong we are, um, or your own opinions on this as well. I'd love to hear love to hear your thoughts. If you've never watched it before and then decided to watch this because of how, what we've been talking about, please let us know how you found it. Um, I'm, I'll be generally, generally intrigued to hear, hear any new thoughts of people watching it for the first time. Um, so yeah, feel free to get in contact. And I think with that, it's time for us to sign out. So I want to say say goodbye, Tony. Goodbye. Tony. Thank you. And that's all that's left to, that's all that's left to say is excellent. Shipwrecked and Comatose, a Red Dwarf podcast, was created and produced by Mark Adams and Kurt North. You can find us on Twitter at Red Dwarf Pod, and we are part of the We Made This Podcast Network, which can be found online at WeMadeThisPod.com or on Twitter at WeMadeThisPod. Hello, everyone. This is Tony, Network Chief of We Made This. As you know, our podcast network brings together a brilliant assortment of talent who talk about all kinds of pop culture content, such as the episode you've just listened to, or maybe you're just about to listen to. We're not going anywhere, but we'd love to keep the lights on for even longer if you're able to support our network on Patreon. For just £2 a month, you get your name in lights and the satisfaction of knowing you're helping us produce more great audio. And for £3 a month, you'll get your name in lights, but you'll also get access to an exclusive bi-monthly podcast from the We Made This Talent Pool on podcasting, pop culture, and, well, you tell us. We'll take your suggestions. For less than the price of a coffee per month, you can help keep We Made This going. Just head to patreon.com forward slash we made this. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash we made this. And get the ball rolling. Now, back to your scheduled programming. Elsewhere on We Made This. Back to the decade. And then, yeah, Uh, like you said, uh, Dom Toretto responds with, Your mistake is thinking you're in the United States. This is Brazil. And then everyone points their guns at him. Great plan. Quite a scene. I love all the guys with armor... And tanks are like, hey man, Swiss versus the rock. This is a lot of heat.
We should get out of here. <laughs> get out of here, man. Oh, man. Cerebral jukebox. I think as I've got older, I don't care what people think of my music taste anymore. I'm happy to admit that, like, I really missed the boat because like in the 2000s i was moody angsty teen and i was to Papa Roach and lincoln park on a, on the daily and i'd be ashamed to admit that i kind of like savage garden and craig yeah. david and i had this very strange diet but now i'll go back and list all these like 2000s uk garage tracks and they were absolutely astounding life's milestones so when i met my wife we couldn't decide who should go first for having kids. We knew we both wanted to. And so we kind of were up for playing a bit of Russian roulette. <laughs> <And we're, laughs> okay. We also, in Canada, we get a year of maternity leave when a baby is born. And so we wanted to each have a baby so that we could have a year together with our whole family and just like get to know each other. And right. so. We opted for that and we found a, a known donor that was willing to provide us with some sperm and we both got pregnant around the same time and our babies were born 25 days apart. <laughs> with the same donor? Same donor, yeah. Does that make them twins? We call them twiblings, twin siblings. Brilliant, brilliant. <laughs> I love this. <laughs> Check out all of these shows and more on the We Made This Podcast Network. <laughs>